This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, one of the great heroes of the Jewish communal world, Rabbi Simcha Scholar, founder and director of Chai Lifeline, an incredible organization that has provided now for decades thousands of families suffering from an ill child services to the children in the form of Camp Simcha or many other year-round experiences and to the families as well, an entire ecosystem of support, charitable resources, connections, medical services, bereavement counseling, and so much more. Chai Lifeline has also become an institutional staple in the broader community in the sense that so many hundreds if not thousands of young people have had their own lives transformed by becoming volunteers, mentors, counselors, and the like. So really a treat to speak with Rabbi Scholar. We were working on this interview for a long time. COVID came and went, then other Jewish communal tragedies that forced High Lifeline into action as they always do when difficulty occurs in our midst. But we finally did get to connect and I'm so glad and grateful that we did. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know spelled with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, suggestions, sponsorships, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please rate and review wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Spread the word so that friends and family can learn about this wonderful podcast, hopefully find some inspiration in their own lives. And now to our conversation with Chai Lifeline, founder and director, Rabbi Simcha Scholar. We are here with Rabbi Simcha Scholar, the founder and CEO of Chai Lifeline, an amazing, amazing organization servicing children with illness and their families, one of the most profound and, and incredible institutions in the Jewish world today. And uh, very, very honored to have you with us. Rabbi, how are you? Thank God I'm doing fine. And it's really a privilege and an honor to be with you and to talk to your global family. Amazing. Now, I, I didn't do this to butter you up, I promise. But the timing is amazing. I actually made a High Lifeline donation just today. I got an email from someone who called me a couple uh, last week. And the, just today, I made my, my donation. So now we're in, we're, we're in, a, we're in equal footing over here. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how much it was, but you know, I am on a rabbi's salary. So it was uh, <laughs> modest, but meaningful. Um, anyway, tell us where you're from. What was your, what was your background? Um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And then my father, who was a rabbi, my father could rest in peace, was a rabbi and he was a teacher, tremendous influencer in, in, in the Jewish community and a businessman. We moved to Westbury, Long Island, where um, myself and my sisters grew up. Uh, we went to school in Queens. Uh, my sisters, I think, went to Manhattan because that's where the appropriate Jewish schools were for us at that time. And um, it was a very interesting experience, uh, you know, growing up, quote unquote, out of town, uh, being the only religious family, or I think there were two or three other religious families in the, in the community, Shomer Shabbat, those that kept Shabbos. But we felt a 
a real sense of family, a real sense of community, and a real sense of mission. From there, I went to, when I went to school in Queens, I went to Chofetz Chaim High School. That was a high school in Forest Hills at that time, where I was under the influence of some great teachers. One of them in particular, Rabbi Gabriel Ginsberg, who was then the principal, the Menachel of the high school, and he had a profound influence on my life. What about him was so uh, moving to you? He was a thinker, he was a driver, he was a mover and a shaker. He created a program called Seed all over America. And in fact, I remember when the idea germinated during class. He was a powerhouse. Um, he actually was a, someone that learned in Telsey Yeshiva in, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. But uh, he was a powerhouse. He was engaging. He was a true mentor, uh, a true Rebbe of mine and my family. And um, from Chobetz Chaim High School, I went to Israel. Then I went to Muri Yeshiva, uh, where I was privileged to learn probably the most foremost institution in the world, uh, Talmudic scholarship, great yeshiva here in New York. My teachers were Shmuel Birnbaum, one of the great Torah scholars of our, our gener- last generation. And I went to Israel, and they helped me become, or I shouldn't say they helped me, they created who I am. Uh, and I received my rabbinical ordination from the yeshiva, and um, I was very involved in NCSY as a national advisor. I was very, very, had a very profound influence on my life also. Mine as well, by the way. I was a very active NCSY member uh, in, in my high school years. I, I was an advisor, very, very close to uh, Rabbi Tao, both Tao, very close to others. Chilon Bell, may you rest in peace. Sure, yes, very close, yes. Well, we were contemporaries, we were older than I, but you know, we were contemporaries. So I, I, myself and my wife, I married my, obviously we got married. Uh, that's why she's my wife. She actually comes from Brooklyn, comes from Canarsie, you know, that's like out of town Brooklyn. We learned in, in the cold earlier for a number of years. And the desire and the commitment to do something positive for the Jewish community was there on both of our parts. And we set out uh, in the field of uh, education and outreach. I got my rabbinical ordination. I um, started teaching uh, in various different schools and high schools. We were supposed to go to an out-of-town community. That didn't work out. And then I became a rabbi of a, of a local community synagogue of a shul in Brooklyn. And that's where we had a very great life. You know, I was, I was a rabbi. I was teaching. I was teaching and then after high school in five towns. My wife was taking care of the you know, growing family. Uh, we had a very active synagogue, very active shul, and everything seemed right, you know. Now, I, ma- I imagine something happened, something changed, <laughs> and I want to get to it, but I want to rewind just a bit first because, you know, it sounds like your father was this amazing teacher and, and inspiring and inspired figure in your life. And I want to understand where. You know, where does your family come from originally? What were the early influences, even before you were born? And the name Scholar, and I've heard your name for, for many, many years, about decades, just in the Jewish world. And I always wondered, where did that name come from? You know, did he, did he make it up? Because it's so perfect for, you know, a... a <laughs> I'll tell you where they came from. It's interesting. My parents were born in America. 
uh, my in-laws, may they rest in peace, were not. Uh, they, were, they were born in Europe, they went through World War II, concentration camps, etc. But my parents were born in America. My grandparents came to America, my paternal grandparents, and I think my maternal the same thing, came to America right after World War I. Uh, they came from a town in the Ukraine called Mezhebish. Mezhebish was the town and the city where the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement was. That's where he, the center of the, of the whole movement was. And it was actually a very a unique kavod. It was an honor to be considered a Mezhebish Yehud. Be someone that came from Mezhebish. And especially that community of Hasidim that came from that area, like Square, uh, Square Hasidim and, and others. So they came here right after World War I. There was a window of opportunity after World War I that the communist regime in Russia allowed people to leave um, for two or three years. That was right after the Russian Revolution. Right, you know, they allowed people to leave. And um, they came here. Uh, my grandmother, her father, was here already. They, he also, they, she also came from Mezhbish was here already on business or whatever, and brought them over. My grandfather was a unique personality. My grandfather was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham. He understood the entire Shas. He had, literally had it on his fingertips. This is your father's father? My father's father. But he was a, he was a, um, a tailor, and then he had a grocery store. And, and, but he, he was a unique individual that he, he was able to, he kept to all the traditions uh, they were very, very careful about the meticulous about the observance of all the mitzvot uh, at a time where it was challenging, it was difficult. It was difficult to keep Shabbos and have a job. It was difficult to uh, bring up a, a family of observant Jews. It wasn't that the educational system was not as sophisticated. There was a lot of movement, uh, you know, not to have a traditional lifestyle. And, you know, it was against the tide, different than it is today. My father was a large family. Was a family members. My father was the most studious one, and he went to Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn. My grandfather was actually one of the, the ones that was on the, the board and helped establish the high school of Chaim Berlin. He went to Chaim Berlin, and he was a very uh, studious person. He was planning actually on going to Europe to study in the, in the famous schools in, in Europe, but then World War II broke out. So... And he was a person that was very committed to Jewish education, very person that was very committed to outreach, not as we know it today, but you know, as we as we knew it back then, which meant just loving everybody that you see and giving them the opportunity of a Jewish education. So that was the story that I was brought up with. My mother was not educated in any yeshiva in her days. There was no sophisticated or advanced yeshiva system. She went to public school, but from a strong background, a strong family, and uh, you know, and she was educated, and she dedicated her life to my father. And uh, being in Jewish education in those days, if you think you have a hard time making a living now, I can tell you in those days it was like impossible. My father would tell me when I started going into Jewish education, you need three jobs. Three jobs? Yeah, you need your regular job in the morning because that's what you really want to do. Then you need a second job at, in the afternoon because you got to supplement your income. Then you need a third job at night because the first job is not going to pay you on time. <laughs> <laughs> that was the lifestyle. 
you kind of committed yourself to a life of poverty and difficult, but these young American yeshiva students and Talmidei Chachamim that came out of the yeshiva system 70 or 80 years ago here, you know, 70 years or 75 years ago, they were the ones that laid the groundwork for all the great Torah institutions to, to flourish. Who were some of his close friends, you know, became great uh, leaders? Byron Shechter was one of the yeshiva today of, of Chaim Berlin. There were many that were... Was your grandfather close with the, the Herman family? No, the Herman family was in Williamsburg. Our grandparents were, were in Brownsburg, two different parts of the community, of the, of the Brooklyn community. In fact, my older two uncles, may they rest in peace, they went to high school in Williamsburg, to Torah Vidas High School, because there was no high school yet in, in, in Brownsburg. My father was in the second graduating place of Pioneer. So him and his contemporaries, he would have by Schechter, by Gettinger, Emmanuel Gettinger, or others. Uh, yeah, because those family narratives sound very similar in terms of the, you know, the, the commitment, the, the steadfastness. Yeah, they, they were, they were, listen, they were, they, again, they, they, these guys bucked the time. You know, the, my father and his friends, they bucked the time, you know, going to Jewish education and committing themselves to, you know, to the furtherance of, of, of Judaism. It was a, not a common thing for an American boy going to the rabbinate of the Jewish education. He had a lot of Yiddish-speaking people, and, you know, the Americans needed something different. And she was the first started to get going, you know, uh, why you first started producing people, and then, you know, and, and then the other yeshivas, you know, they were, they were small, and uh, comparatively speaking, you know, to today. And uh, going out of the New York area, out of town, you know, it was temporary. You, know, you couldn't go for so many years because you needed, you know, more advanced yeshiva education for your kids. You have to come back to the local in town. They would call it that. But yeah, these are pioneers. These are great pioneers. These are pioneers of standards of kashrut, pioneers of standard of Jewish family purity. You know, pioneers of, of upholding the strictest halachic lifestyle, living within society that it wasn't so you know, so much like that. And uh, you know. The old was just about beginning at that those days in Kashrut. It was difficult. It, it was difficult, but we we had. You know, I was always overweight. We always had whatever we needed. <laughs> and um, you know, my father, may rest in peace, affected a lot of people. So that's the type of environment that uh, I was brought up in. And my wife um, is, of course, uh, a dynamic personality in her own right. She's a brilliant educator, principal. Where did the name Scholar ultimately, was that one generation back or two back? I myself am trying to figure this out. I think it was some guy who wrote on uh, Ellis Island that when they came, they came over. They, I think because my great-grandfather was the Malame, he was the teacher of the family Mezhbush. So when they came here, they told them what their name was, Skuliar or something like that. And said, what do you do? The teacher, the guy said Scholar. There were so many stories like that. I can't pinpoint it to be very honest with you. And there aren't that many scholars in the... Uh, right, you don't hear it. It's, it's a very book, you know, your younger generation doesn't really know what that means. That's right. <laughs> you Google scholar, but all you're going to get is a whole bunch of chips. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. So it's, it's just such a unique name, and it really, I imagine it for your father, it was like something that stood out as a rabbi, you know. This is the rabbi scholar, you know. <laughs> yeah, I tell you the truth. Every, from grade school to high school, to college, Oh, you think you're a scholar, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you have to deal with all the, all the jokes. And everyone, I'll bet, thought they were the first one to make the joke. <laughs> uh, well, listen, you know, I, I, 
I'd rather work on my first name, Simcha. Simcha means happiness. I think happiness is a far, far more difficult thing to achieve in life than just being a scholar. Scholar, you know, study hard, be studious, be diligent, you'll become a scholar. Simcha already, that's something that's a lifelong objective. If you confuse the two, then you really have the a winning formula. So, okay, fast forwarding back to the, uh, it sounds like at this point you had a pretty standard, it's a kind of, uh, you know, yeshiva education trajectory. Yeah, this, you know, this wonderful family you came from of very committed, dedicated Jews, sent you to Jewish schooling. You got your rabbinic ordination, doing some, you know, teaching jobs and that which could have been projected or expected, I imagine, had someone met you five, 10 years earlier. But at some point, things shifted because to my knowledge, that's, you know, you're not today a communal rabbi or a teacher in a school, but you rather built one of the largest and most impactful institutions in the Jewish world and servicing so many thousands of families in a very, very different way than classroom education or from a pulpit. So what happened that this shift occurred? Well, 30 some odd years ago, I was a rabbi, as I said, I was a rabbi of a show in um, Brooklyn. And there was a member of the synagogue whose child got ill, not knowing exactly what that meant. So these were wonderful people. And we began to help them, as any communal rabbi I'm sure would do, and any community would try to do. And I saw in front of my eyes, not knowing what I was seeing, the effects of illness on a child. At the same time, I met an individual by the name of Pinchas Horowitz, who was the Boston Rebbe's oldest son, who had this unique idea of creating a camp for children with cancer. Not about the high life that it is today, just a camp for children. And we began talking a little bit. And at the same time, a dear friend of mine calls me up one day. And he says to me, Simcha, you need to endorse a particular candidate for the New York State Assembly. I said to him, is he? Are you out of your mind? A rabbi can't endorse people. Besides the fact, my contract is coming up soon. What am I crazy? I'm going to endorse one guy and the other guys in the the, the show are not going to like it. I'm not, you know. I got to make a living. <laughs> anyway, so he was very, very, very convincing, and he convinced me to do it. So I endorsed this gentleman by the name of Stanley Steingart. Anyway, Friday night in my home, on my couch, I was leafing through a paper, actually it was the Jewish press. It was the paper in those days of all the Jewish community news. And I'm leafing through the paper, and I see that on one side of the paper, Every rabbi in Flatbush, every rabbi in Flatbush, endorses the other guy. <laughs> Whoops. And, and on the other side of the, of the paper, right, I see myself and four other rabbis who I don't know their names. Never heard of them before. Endorse Stanley Steinberg. Now, Monday is the election. It's election. Tuesday, right? Tuesday is the election. Close the newspaper. I told my wife, I said, Michelle, we're finished. I'm going to walk into show tomorrow morning. I'm dead. Anyway, Tuesday comes. Steingart wins. Thursday, I get a phone call from Stanley Steingart. Now, there's a good reason why Steingart, people didn't want Steingart, because Steingart was a comic. And he, got, he was the speaker of the assembly, a very powerful man, but eventually he got thrown off the position because he was doing not such great things. Now, he calls me up. 
And he says to me, Rabbi, come down to my office. So I drive down to his office. And he's sitting on this big, big desk, you know, like, a, like the old pictures of Mayor Daly in Chicago. And chomping on this huge cigar. The rabbi sit down. He said, I want to thank you for endorsing me. Everybody was endorsing the other guy. You're a real friend. What could I do for you? I'm looking at him. I had two speeding tickets in my pocket. <laughs> Pull out the speeding tickets. I said, maybe you can work this out. I didn't know what they asked for. I'm a, I'm a rabbi. What do I know? You didn't quite have the aspirations. of. <laughs> yeah, so he looks at me like I'm crazy, right? Anyway, she says, no, I want to do something for children. I'm going to write out a check for the New York State Department of Health. I can tell why the guy was eventually... Uh, he siphoned it off from wherever, yeah. $25,000. I'm going to send it to your synagogue and spend it on children. Okay, a couple of days later, we got a check for $25,000. Spend it on children. What are we going to do? Anyway, we had this idea of a camp. I had this kid, I had this kid in my own synagogue. I had Rabbi Horowitz. So let's do it. So we created a camp for children with cancer. And we took that kid together with, we found seven other kids. And that's how Camp Simcha began. Was it all children with cancer? Those days, it was, all, it was only a camp, only for children with cancer. Yep. How did you know that you could tackle such a thing? You know, the logistics and the medical responsibilities. We didn't. We didn't. <laughs> we, got, we got a doctor who actually broke his leg right before the summer. Then we got another doctor. And... Uh, we did it at the end of the summer in Camp Sternberg on Greenwood. Zechotel of Rachel, may rest in peace, gave us the camp. And we had this camp. We knew what we were doing, basically, what they were saying. And then we had a few bucks left over after the camp. And we started doing, you know, what else could we do for these kids? And we noticed that there were other issues, year-round issues. And that's how it began. And then we went from one, one knee to another knee to another knee. We created a whole, a whole a network of services around, around a family because we realized that, that the kid is sick, but really the whole family suffers. Uh, so we did a you know, network of services, case management, uh, financial help, uh, advocacy, information, support groups, recreational activities, sibling activities. And we went from there and we kept on reaching out and reaching out. Then we opened up a regional office then we went into other parts of the United States. Then we started these in-hospital programs. Then we realized that there's a whole population besides cancer called what we call special here, which is a whole bunch of different life, longer life-threatening illnesses. And uh, fast forward 33 years later, from a humble rabbi, and I still am a humble rabbi, the eight kids, today, how I find deals with about 6,200 families, thousands of individuals, 14 regional offices throughout the world. Thousands of volunteers, hundreds of employees. From a $25,000 a year budget, we have a $30 million a year budget domestically, another $10 million internationally. Uh, we thank God are one of the few organizations left in this world where payus and ponytails meet. We love everyone. We don't look at anyone's background or where you come from or where you're married to or what school synagogue you go to. You have a child, it's sick, they're sick, they're part of our community, we're here to help you. And we've established one of the most, as you said before, very, very, very rightfully so, one of the most impactful 
professional organizations in the Jewish world. Uh, we've established a professional organization that is respected on the highest level of the, the medical world. It's a privilege, actually. It's a privilege to be head of such a thing. It's a privilege to associate myself with the staff that we have. And it's a privilege to make the impact that we make on a daily basis. We're not here to change anyone. We're here to help you. That first summer, eight kids, seven kids, do you remember kind of a moment where you're saying, say, wow, this, you know, sometimes you enter into something, you do, you do something to help someone out and okay. But then you're in the experience and you realize, oh my goodness, this is, this is magic. There's something, something's happening here. Right away, we noticed the magic. Right away, we felt that unique simcha, that happiness that we were producing. Right away, we saw, you know, something, it's about the staff member and about how they relate to kids. You can see it, you can feel it. And right away we saw it. And it kept on growing and growing and growing. You know? I think the mere fact that we, we consider the most important thing that we do in our life, in our organizational life, is making a difference to the one child's life. But if we can put a smile on a kid's face for one minute, we can help family one time, it's worth the whole deal. I think that is the mantra that keeps this organization relevant and alive and effective. How long was it till you were doing this full-time? A couple of years. You know, it went in stages. Initially, after, I think after about five years, maybe, I gave up teaching. And then I gave up, a couple of years later, I gave up the rabbinate. And then I had to do this full-time. But uh, You know something? Sometimes Hashem sends you a message and tells you exactly what He wants you to do with your life. In our life's plans, my wife and I, this was not part of the plan. The plan was education, the plan was outreach, the plan was the revenue. This was not part of, my, of our life. Hashem just directed us to this. Financially, I'm the head of a major organization. I have a, I have a master's in education, I have an MBA, but trust me, the, the bills in the Scholar family are paid by Mrs. Scholar. <laughs> I cannot juggle the finances. So Hashem gave us the light here to tell us this is what we have to do. But I got to tell you that probably the reason why we're successful here is because actually a lesson that my father taught me, he said to me, oh, he used to say to me, know exactly what you don't know. And you recognize that, and then you ask the people that do know it, you're going to get the right advice. And you think you know it all, you usually fail. What's, what's incredible is that, you know, as you said, you were trained to be a rabbi and now you're running not only, you know, it's an institution that is completely distinct from your training in multiple ways. The core of what you do, the medical aspect has nothing to do with rabbinics and that's its own expertise and dealing with kids with cancer and then eventually with trauma and all the other issues in, uh, that you, that you tackle. And then on the financial side, Managing and raising this massive budget has also nothing to do with you know, rabbinic uh, training. How did you learn to do these things, accomplish these kinds of missions that were just so foreign to your training? Rabbinical training is not just textual. There's obviously text involved. But true rabbinical training is being a student amongst the great rabbis. 
and understanding the process of critical thinking for matters within Jewish prism and perspective. You cannot separate philanthropy, humanitarian needs, chesed, benevolence, and kindness from the true measures of Jewish philosophy, Jewish ethics, and Jewish law. And what a true smicha means, the true rabbinical certification means, is that we can depend upon you to make the right Jewish decision. So there are many, you're true, we have an excellent CFO here to deal with the finances. We have excellent professionals that deal with the other things. But the many decisions that have to be made here are made through the, the appropriate Jewish prison. And that's why people give their charity money. Because not only is it effective to what they do, but, they do, but we're doing it in the proper Jewish way. And I must tell you, to this day, every major decision is done with rabbinical consultation. Till the Rashid Zechayim Rachel of David Feinstein passed away, he was the person. He didn't, he didn't breathe without him. He appointed an in-house rabbi that, that we ask our big questions to ask. So now we ask others, uh, you know, but so I think that's the reason why we're successful because we have that direction. We're not just right. There are many, many good organizations out there doing a lot of good things, for humanity, benevolent organizations, wonderful organizations making a world of difference. What, what defines High Life Find is, yes, we are all those things. And we are an organization that is guided and directed by the appropriate Torah leadership and scholarship to do what God wants us to do. And uh, we have a wonderful board of directors over here that also believes in that, that uh, is committed to that. And they realize there is no separation of church and state. The church needs to respect the state and the state needs to respect the church. So. That's what defines who we are. And we don't discriminate uh, in our activities to the different parts of the community. And we also don't discriminate in our mantra of excellence. Because we are a Jewish organization, proud Jewish organization. Yes, we have this commitment to rabbinical leadership and Torah scholarship and Torah direction and the Torah das Torah Torah decision-making process. But on the flip side, on the other side, we, are, we, we believe in five-star professionals. And one does not discount the other, not by any stretch of the imagination. We are a five-star professional organization. And we are a five-star follower of Torah scholarship and Torah direction. And that's why we love everyone. That's why we service everyone. That's why we don't discriminate against everyone. And that's why we understand the impact of Avas Yisrael loving our fellow Jew. It's every Jew, everywhere, anywhere. And everyone's equal. They're equal whether they live in Williamsburg, Silver Springs, or Williamsdale, Virginia. It's, you know, you mentioned Jews from, from different backgrounds, and I, just from my personal experience, you know, my uh, my primary job working in Jewish outreach, I remember a family that we became close to, the, the children on campus and then their parents and 
you know, they had a son who was uh, who had unfortunately passed away from cancer, but had gone a number of summers to Camp Simcha. And this was a family that was very far from, from orthodoxy. And I, that was actually my first introduction to the awareness that Kim Simcha really had this broader spectrum. I didn't realize that, although I had, of course, known of Kim Simcha for many years. And, and I realized, oh, you guys, you know uh, Kim Simcha? Of course, we <laughs> went there for years. We, it's so close to our hearts. And I, w- I was very struck by that. And it's uh, perhaps tragic that it needs to be in a place of illness and sickness that the Jewish people come together and encounter each other. But at least it's happening there. Yeah, it, it is tragic, but I'll tell you the truth, it's really a laboratory of, of Jewish leadership. Because Kam Simcha and Kam Simcha special are unique. Uh, they're, they're, it's, you know, one's a camp for children with cancer, Kam Simcha, and the other one's a camp for children with other types of illnesses. Uh, it's unique because it's highly professional, it's a magnificent facility. Uh, the medical care there is uh, superior. We have medical care that's uh, superior to any local medical facilities. Uh, you know, we have a state-of-the-art medical center up there. But it's a laboratory of Jewish leadership also because the boys and the girls that come as staff members. And they fight to get in, as everyone knows. And by the way, my son will be there this summer. Okay, so let me tell you. <laughs> so, you know, they fight to get in. It's not, not, it's not easy to get in. A lot, a lot of good, good people go. And we're very selective in who we take. But they see this. They see kids from all different backgrounds. They see fellow staff members from all different backgrounds. And everyone's all the same. Everyone goes to different types of schools. It's a very unique place. They get positively affected by it. They understand the power of giving. They understand the beauty of being in a profession that gives. We have many, 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 many staff members that change their career paths because of their experience in Camp Simcha. They were on a, uh, you know, they wanted to be in the financial world and do X, Y, and Z. They come to Camp Simcha. And they said, no, son, I'm going into social work, I'm going into medicine, I'm going, whatever, going to various different things. Anywhere I go in the world, any, and I trust me, I go up to a lot of places in the world. Anywhere I go in the world, I always meet a Kam Simcha alumnus or alumni. I see a man or a woman. I, I see them all over the place. And they are all involved in the community because we teach them to be involved in the community. So that either they're professionally involved in the community as the rabbis and the teachers and the Revitsons and the Morot, or they are, they're the lay leadership of the community because they see that they feel a need to give, they have the understanding importance of taking responsibility. They understand the, the, the importance of making a difference. So we invest a lot of time and money into making sure that the staff members have a very productive and positive time. We have a whole staff up there just for the staff members, you know, in terms of to, to allow them to learn properly, and to learn to daven properly, and to, a lot of different things you know that are going on. Because we feel that one of the great accomplishments that we're doing for the community is this: we're producing these young men, young women that are givers, and they're going to be making big differences. Hopefully, your son will be one of those. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, both of my, my older children have both been uh, pretty avid volunteers during the year. And then last year, my son was uh, on one of the satellite COVID uh, programs in Maryland. Um, they called it Orlo Delta Pi. That was the, uh, that was the, the local camp. It was the Orlovsky uh, sponsored camp. And then this summer he's going as a, as a regular counselor, you know, to whatever the kind of the truncated program it's going to be uh, this summer. Doing the best with what we have to do. Doing the best with what we can. I mean, What's amazing to me is that you've been able to do 
in a way that I think is unique to any Jewish organizations is somehow you've made High Lifeline cool. Meaning it's become the kind of thing where my daughter will come home for, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and she's collecting money for High Lifeline. People want to do it. People want to get involved. And it's a, it's a really unique feature, I think, of the organization that it's become so mainstreamed and so desirable. And I think almost as a kind of a, almost a detached organizational analysis. It's fascinating to see an organization that's reached that cachet in the community. How do you think that's occurred? First and foremost, it's real. It's real. And people know that it makes a real difference in people's lives. There's not a single person in the Jewish community that either doesn't know someone that was affected by High Lifeline over the years personally, or, or, or their neighbor doesn't know someone. Everyone knows someone that had a child that needed the help of High Lifeline over the years. So it's real. Staff members in Kemsen could come back and tell about the real experience. It's a real thing. It doesn't need to be uh, cosmetically built up. It's real. It's meat and potatoes. That's number one. Number two, we listen to the young people very well. And Baruch Hashem, thank God, we have a lot of young people that are involved here, staff members in Kemsen. And they tell us you know, what the temperature is out there. And we try to adjust accordingly. We're not afraid to make changes. Uh, number three, we use all of our, you know, Jewish community experience, education, rabbinical experience, to see exactly what, you know, what turns on people and how we're going to engage people. And we have some uniquely talented individuals that work for us throughout the world. And put all those factors together, we listen to the young. We're not afraid to change. We're never satisfied with who we are. We're always, move, we're always interested in moving forward and making things better. So give that combination. It's the combination of success. Uh, and that's why, Baruch Hashem, thank you, Almighty God, we're very successful in a lot of different things that we do. But we can never rest on our laurels because there's so much more to be done. So we're never happy here. Never content. You could be happy, but not content. That's true. It's a much better way to say that. I'm sure you've dealt with so much heartbreak and pain, you know, over, over time, just the children that don't make it and people, the loss and, and the difficulty. What I find really interesting is that High Lifeline has become kind of the go-to resource for communities in pain. I know from, you know, when, when there's local tragedies, we shouldn't know from them, but they do happen. And, you know, in Silver Spring has been, you know, every number of years, there's a terrible tragedy. Someone passes very early or very suddenly. And, of course, in the broader Jewish world, as you know, I, I observe you know, the recent tragedy we, we had in Meron and other terrible calamities. Chai Lifeline seems to be the go-to institution to come and address these issues and to go in with interventions in the school and advising, you know, how do you talk to your children? And is that an outgrowth of kind of the process that you've had to do in your own life and in your own inner circle to learn how to deal with pain, to learn how to deal with heartbreak? Actually, it was an outgrowth of the whole high lifeline because dealing with sick children, sometimes the outcomes are not good. That's just the reality. So we would have to deal, as we would nurture these people through initial diagnoses and through the whole treatment world, uh, and then, God forbid, the child dies, what do we do then? Just walk away? So we created a bereavement department. And from the bereavement department came this crisis intervention department. So perhaps, so now, Project High, which is headed by Dr. David Fox, one of the foremost uh, psychologists, 
crisis traumatologists in the, in the world, together with a whole staff of people on it, have developed this project that is accessible to the various different communities throughout the world when there is a tragedy like that. We came up with a brilliant idea of volunteer trainings where we train crisis interventionists, volunteer crisis interventionists, kind of like unpaid professionals. So the, the reach of Project High is very local. Something is needed in Silver Springs. We have people in Silver Springs, people in Baltimore or wherever to be able to come in right away. And we have this capability. It's a, it's a big organization. So we have this capability of immediately you know, responding. At the Marone tragedy, we must have reached out to 250, 300,000 people uh, that got our brochures, that listened to our lectures. And as you say, every major organization in the world hooked up with High Lifeline, and we're happy. One of the great attributes of High Lifeline is we cherish partnerships and we want to be the resource for organizations. So that's how it happened. That's, how, that's why Project High is one of the most unique creations in, in the Jewish world. I would have to say of all the great things that High Lifeline created, dealing uh, with children that are ill and creating a High Lifeline support network of services and its outreach and education and Kem Simcha and the children with cancer and, and children with other types of illnesses, all the great accomplishments. In my opinion, the greatest accomplishment is this Project High, because we finally created a real professional vision here to deal with something that was never dealt with, the impact of trauma. And training local people with a local face gives the community much more comfort. Someone who locally comes in and is trained. Traumatology is a very, very unique specialty. And in the Hasidic world, we have Hasidim that are trained. And in the yeshiva world, we have yeshiva people like that. The modern Orthodox or the modern Orthodox church. Everyone is culturally appropriate. And, uh, and that's what it works. And, we, and, we, and we've trained teachers and we've trained others. Uh, you know, I think last year, I have the report right in front of me. Last year, from March to March, we reached over a half a million people. COVID was certainly a trauma for people. Big time. And uh, 3,000 different times, they, they went into close to 250 schools last year. And Communities like Silver Springs, well over 100. So we're talking about, it's been quite busy here. This past two weeks, a uh, couple of weeks, uh, between Marone and the war and terrible tragedy and Colleen Stolen. Uh, yes, right before Shavuos, yeah. Before Shavuos, it's been, it's been really a... Um, Unfortunately busy. It's really been a tough one. Yeah. And starting to wrap up, you know, as you've built such a large institution... I must correct you. I did not build anything. I work here. I have the privilege of, of working with great people. The reason why we are successful is not because of simple scholars. The reason why we are successful is because of the one above. He gives us that capability, that siyat deshmaya, that special help, and he sends the money every so often. <laughs> Absolutely worthy and, 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 and fair correction. So this institution that you have helped God build uh, over the last uh, 30 plus years. What have been some of the, the great challenges along the way? Everyone, of course, again, looks at the, you, know, you can look at a, at a High Lifeline gala dinner and it is the production value is just incredible. It's Hollywood, you know, worthy. And 
there's so much glitz and glamour and such, you know, it seems like all success and, and great accomplishment. But I'm sure that behind all of that, there's so much, not only hard work, but, you know, stumbles and, and failures and challenges and difficulties. And I think those are really important to highlight as well, because otherwise people can, you know, get a sense of, uh, we say in Hebrew, Chalisha Sadas, or, you know, sense of uh, disillusionment and, and a sense of, you know, okay, this is not something that's relevant that I could ever contribute to, or I could never do something this great because it, it just seems to just happen. What were some of those, you know, signature difficulties that you faced that you had to overcome, again, you in the collective sense, the greater team uh, with assistance from above to get to where you are? Well, firstly, we had to educate our community of the need of helping a sick child. Uh, it's not just about depositing the child in a hospital and everything's going to come out okay. We have to educate a community that there are ramifications to illness, uh, to the child, to the siblings, to the family, to the whole community. We have to be relevant and understand the changes of the hospital guidelines and the hospital cultures. We had to be very, very, very concerned that we don't become too corporate and too overly professional. We were stuffy and, we are, and everyone is just a case and a number and an object and a service. But rather, it's about the individual. It's all about the one person. It's about the personal relationship. We had to you know, figure out a way to support this, to support this in a, in a, in a mega way. We had to also understand discipline. But there are many things in this world that need to be done. Not everything can we do. We can only do a specific amount. And we always had a goal. Is that until we know that every person that needs our help is helped, we have not reached the goal. Every person in this world, God created the world to give good to people. That's what Moshe Chaim Mitzato says. The objective that we have is to appreciate the good that God has given us, our health, our family, our careers, and to pay back. And the way how you pay back is by giving somebody else good. Every person in this world can make a difference. You don't have to build organizations to make a difference. You have to make a difference in your neighbor, in your fellow human being. Every person cannot live for themselves. You must live for others. That is the obligation of everyone. Yes, I have been privileged to lead an organization, and there are others that have this privilege also. But without the lay leadership involvement, we can't do anything. And that's how Hashem wanted it. Hashem wanted a Yisachar and a Zavulun. He wanted a partnership. Someone that was going to be in commerce, like Zavulun, and someone that was going to be in scholarship, like Yisachar. Everyone has an obligation to partner and to make a difference. Building worlds is building a person. One person is a world. That's how we measure success. And that every person has an obligation to do, but most of all, every person has the capability of doing it. And people should not discount their God-given capabilities. Hashem has given each and every one of us unique capabilities that only that person can make a difference in a specific way. And if you don't exactly know what you can do, then speak to someone who knows you, and they will tell you what you can do. 
you can do it. Finally, Rabbi Scholar, what, what would you say is left to do in, in this high lifeline universe? You've built so many dimensions to the organization. Now with these Project Chai and you have regular Simcha and Simcha Special and year-round programming and international programming. What's the next frontier? What's, what's still missing? The next frontier is that there are still many more communities that don't have a high lifeline presence. There are still many communities that need to be inspired to do more. There's still many families and many children that aren't getting as much as they possibly can from us because we're not there. We don't have the capabilities of supporting them. There's an awful lot to do that uh, hopefully we'll be able to get done as quickly as possible because we don't want to do it anymore. We want Mashiach to come and we want everyone that is sick to be well. Amen. Well, I encourage everyone listening to look up High Lifeline on, online. Google it. It's C-H-A-I. Lifeline, quite easy to, to find online. And uh, if you can participate in any way, donating, volunteering, supporting, um, it's really an incredible organization touching so many people. Rabbi Simcha Scholar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for allowing me to participate. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.